All right, it's good to be back. If you have your Bibles, open up in Mark chapter 10, and we're going to jump right back into our study of the Gospel of Mark, reintroducing Jesus, which is basically introducing those who don't know Jesus, and then reintroducing Jesus to those who might be too familiar with him. So just by way of context, we're in Mark chapter 10, and chapters 9 and 10 are really Jesus' journey from Capernaum, which is kind of his home base for ministry, uh, to Jerusalem, where he will ultimately be crucified. And during this journey over these chapters, you see that Jesus no less than three times will tell his disciples that he is going to Jerusalem, he will be delivered up by the leaders, and he will ultimately suffer and die at the hands of the government. And his disciples either don't believe him, or more than likely, they don't really understand him. We'll read later in chapter 11 that James and John will argue over who gets to sit at the right or left hand of Jesus, assuming that he is on his throne. So they don't really get it. And it makes sense because these two in particular spent time with Jesus on the mountain. He kind of exposed his full glory during the transfiguration. So they are assuming, despite what he's actually saying, that Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem and he is going to come or assume the throne, kick out Rome, and ultimately be the long had promised. And so he's trying to prepare them for something different. He's pr- trying to prepare them for a different kind of kingdom. And as he nears Jerusalem, as he walks along this path, he is going to be confronted by every kind of person you can imagine. What do I mean by that? He gets confronted by fundamentalists, Bible thumpers, if you will. He gets confronted by a wealthy guy. He gets confronted by the charismatics, the activists, the lawyers. They're all coming to him and ultimately trying to kind of challenge who he is. Each interaction teaches us something about Jesus. It also teaches us something about ourselves. So here in Mark 10, Jesus is confronted by what are called the Pharisees. These are the religious leaders, the guys who really are the greatest adherents to the law of Moses. And they are asking him a question about marriage, the rules of marriage. And it's tempting as you read this, to kind of take the passage out of context and start to focus on the rules regarding marriage or divorce or remarriage or just basically spend time, which many do, kind of asking what can I do, what can't I do, what is allowed, what's not allowed, how far can I go and not sin in marriage or divorce or remarriage. Now, even though practically speaking, Jesus is teaching us some things about marriage, that's neither actually the point of the Pharisees' question, nor is it the point of Jesus' response. So even though he's answering their test question, we're going to see that his response kind of tests us. It tests our response to God's rules, uh, our response, if, if you will, to God's exceptions and to his word altogether. So if you look at Mark chapter 10, I'll just read the first 12 verses, and then see what Jesus is actually saying beyond just talking about marriage. It says this, that he left there and went 
to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him, and they asked, Was it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And the house of the disciples, they asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is God's word, and it says a lot about marriage, but I would argue that Jesus is saying much more about much more. Now the Pharisees come, and it says to test Jesus. This isn't the first time Jesus has been or will be tested. In Mark chapter 8, the Pharisees at that time came up, and it says they tested him, saying, give us a sign to prove basically you are who you say you are. Later, you'll see in Actually, it's recorded in Matthew 22. The lawyers come up and they start questioning him, going, what's the greatest commandment? Um, and so he gets tested all the time. And he's not being tested uh, in terms of like, what does Jesus know the law? Um, does, he, does he have knowledge of, of the answer? They're actually trying to, to tempt him a little bit, to trap him. It's like a, a snare. They're trying to catch him basically in a, a corner or put him on the spot Uh, in such a way to discredit him publicly. So they're not really asking as much as they're challenging. And so the actual answer answer to the test question really is irrelevant. They don't really care how he answers it because they assume that either way he answers it, he's going to look bad. And that's all they want to do is make Jesus look bad. And so Jesus here is actually asked more specifically this specific question If you read the other Gospels, you'll see they're asking, is it lawful to divorce somebody for any reason at all? Okay, so I just don't want to be married anymore. Is it lawful for me to divorce them? So, this is the test. And he responds to their test question by giving them a question of their own, which is simply this, what did Moses command you? Moses was the one who received the law, who wrote the law. And so, in many ways, essentially the Pharisees are asking, is it allowable, is it permissible to do this? And Jesus is saying, what does the Bible say? What's the Bible say? Which is a great response. And it's a response appropriate for all kinds of questions like this, because this is where we're supposed to start. This is where Jesus starts. He's like, look, look at the Bible first. Not my opinion, but what does the Bible say? And that's because, as we heard in the Psalm 19, but also in Proverbs 19, Jesus believes that the law of God is perfect. He believes, as the Proverbs tell us, the testimony of God is sure. The precepts of God are right. The commandments of God are pure. 
You can believe the Bible. You can trust the Bible. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that the words of the Bible are not just words of men. They are words that God breathed out through men and they were given to equip us for every good work. So he elevates the Bible to a place of, okay, what does the Bible say? Because what the Bible says goes. Now, we all want to pursue, I hope, godly decision-making. We want to make decisions that are right and good. And so we do encounter situations as we go about our daily lives, wanting to understand what is permissible and what is forbidden. What is right? What is wrong? What does God allow and, and, and what does God forbid? And in this present pandemic that we find ourselves in, I don't know about you, but I feel like I've had to ask these kinds of questions daily. What's right? What's wrong? What can I do? What can't I do? And that's good. And the hope is that we turn towards the Scripture. That that's the first place we go. What does the Bible say? But what I find kind of troubling is that there seems to be a growing number of people that look in many other places to find such answers. In response to questions like, is this right or is this wrong? Is this faithful or is this unfaithful? It's not unusual to hear responses that are very different than Jesus. Today I hear many things like, well, what do I say? What do you say? What do they say? What does he say? What does she say? People, it seems, have become less concerned with what the Bible says is right and more concerned with what seems or feels right to them. I'm generalizing, I realize that. But that seems to be the spirit in and outside the church. Now, there's something even more troubling than that. More troubling than... Instead of looking to what the Bible says, I look at what all these other things say. Well, there's something more troubling, and that is when you actually look to what the Bible says, but instead of just taking what it says, you twist it to say what you want it to say. This is kind of what the Pharisees are doing. So this question is really important because there's a context for it. Historically, when you talk about marriage and the valid grounds for divorce, at this time there's kind of two schools of thought. One is conservative and one is, I guess, liberal. Both of them take their understanding from the same verse. So in Deuteronomy 24, which is from the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the five books of the law, the Torah, Deuteronomy gives us some specific laws. And in Deuteronomy 24, it's about marriage. And this is what it says. It'll sound confusing, but I'll hold your hand through it. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, right, so... I find disfavor with you, I divorce you, I give you a certificate, you go and marry somebody else, and that someone else later hates her, which is just another way of saying, I don't want to be married to you anymore. 
writes her a certificate of divorce, and now she's got two certificates, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. But if the latter man dies, so her second husband dies, who took her to be his wife, and then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled or in union with another man. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you should not bring sin upon the land that your Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. So kind of confusing. So I'll break it down for you. But this is where they're getting their rules for marriage and remarriage and divorce. The conservative school focuses in the first part of the verse on the idea of indecency. Right? The verse said, if we found some indecency. So they take indecency and they say the only grounds for divorce is adultery or sexual immorality, some kind of promiscuity that is discovered particularly in the engagement period. Okay? So that's the only grounds for divorce because even in the engagement, if you broke it off, that was considered a divorce. So the liberal school focuses on either favor or some, some disfavor or some indecency. And what they do is a much broader interpretation. They basically say, you can get divorced for anything that you don't find favorable, whether that's burnt toast or I just find someone else attractive now or more attractive. So those are the two thoughts. One says whatever you want, and the other says there's some specific rules that you have to abide by. So the culture that Jesus is existing in right now predominantly holds to the more liberal view. And they largely believe as long as you follow the letter of the law, and that means as long as I issue you a certificate, I can divorce you for any reason I, ha- I want because the importance is the certificate, nothing else. So this is the any cause divorce. And that's the most common divorce that's going on that Jesus' day right now. And ironically, it is actually the most common in our own. Any cause divorce. In fact, you may not know this, the only grounds, at least in the state of Washington, and many other states, but the only grounds for divorce in the state of Washington is this, irretrievable breakdown of marriage. That's the phrase. Irretrievable breakdown of marriage which can mean anything. The state of Washington is also a no-fault divorce state, which means there is absolutely zero evidence required to prove that one spouse is more responsible for the failure of the marriage than the other, even if that involves adultery or abuse or desertion. So any cause divorce, no-fault divorce. That's the world that we live in. So in our state... You can literally and legally marry who you want, divorce who you want, remarry who you want for any time and any reason. We're very similar, with a few exceptions, to what Jesus' day would be like. So what's the point in that? Well, clearly the Pharisees know the Bible. They know it very well. They have literally memorized it. But we see that it's not enough to know what the Bible says if to you it always means what you want it to say. What do I mean by that? Well, if the Bible, and therefore God, 
always agrees with you. Like always agrees with your view that you bring to it. Then it's possible that you have become the center of the universe, the judger of all things, and that your happiness and your preferences and your kind of truth, if you will, is the lawful governing power in your life. Because when Jesus asks questions, or anyone asks questions, what does the Bible say? The reason he asks that question is so that our views might be examined, not just affirmed. We often approach the Bible just looking to have the Bible affirm whatever I want. It's kind of like we, we approach it like Google. You realize whatever view you have, and that could be anything. If you search for it on Google, you will find somebody to agree with you. You will find a study that affirms you. You will find a study that supports you. You will find a person, like, it's there. We ought not approach the Bible that way. The Bible is supposed to examine us, to test us, not just support us and affirm us. And this is what Jesus is trying to do. Telling the guys who know the Bible to actually look at the Bible, though they already memorized the Bible. So instead of giving his opinion to answer the question, Jesus pushes them, if you will, to, to study, to look, to understand themselves. And so, as expected, they respond. Oh, we know exactly what the Bible says. And they quote the letter of the law from Deuteronomy. Give her a certificate of divorce. And we can send them away for any reason. Well, this is where Jesus actually begins to teach. Not so much about the relationship between a husband and a wife, but between God and man, and man and his word. See, the first thing that Jesus teaches about divorce is that there is an exception, the allowance, if you will, that, that Moses gave, particularly for divorce at all, was a result of the hardness of heart. It was a result of sin. He says, look, the only reason there was an allowance ever made was because of man's tendency to do what is right in their own eyes, which began back at Genesis 3. Jesus knows that Moses is not saying you can divorce any person for any reason as long as you give them a piece of paper. On the contrary, what the law actually is doing and why the allowance was made was the law was intended to restrain spouses from making rash decisions because taking that spouse back or that spouse being sent out unbiblically was an abomination to the Lord. Specifically, it was adultery, which was a capital criminal death sentence. So it was a serious thing. It wasn't just a slap on the wrist if you were caught in adultery. And so the law was intended to restrain that. Be careful. The second thing we see Jesus teach is that he unapologetically declares that divorce was not God's ideal from the beginning. So he goes back to creation. He says, let me tell you what God's design was. You see, there's a difference between God's desired will and God's permissive will. What he prefers and what he actually allows. Divorce 
All divorce came as a result of sin. And I would argue that most divorces are mostly sinful. Most divorces are mostly sinful. Why do I say it that way? Because even if the divorce is biblically permissible, which there are permissible reasons to divorce, sin is what has made even that permissible divorce necessary. So sin is always going to be involved in it in some way. Divorce was a result of sin. Now, these kinds of laws for marriage and others were given by God to help regulate sin in our flesh. They were never designed in many ways to stop the sin from our hearts. It doesn't have the power to do that. So what does that mean? When you talk about the law, it means this. Obedience to the law doesn't make you less sinful by nature. But it may actually prevent more sin from occurring. So law is good. It can't save, but it can restrain. The primary purpose of the law was to help us understand how sinful people can love a holy God and how sinful people can love other sinful people. But its primary purpose was to say, well, you're actually quite sinful. This is the direction you're going to go. You're still going to fall short. And so it leads us to someone beyond the law, ultimately Jesus Christ who fulfills the law perfect and gives us his righteousness. But the law is good when used in the right way. And so the laws defining marriage, laws defining or allowing divorce, the laws punishing sexual morality, were all designed to maximize love, but they never had the power to create it. And they were designed to minimize sin, but it never had the power to totally eliminate it. That required Christ. Now, Here's what I find fascinating, is that Jesus, and this is so different than us, Jesus doesn't spend his time in the weeds debating the exceptions, debating the details of even a particular situation or interpretation. Here's what he plainly says. There was once an Eden. It was perfect. We don't live in it anymore. That's an important thing to remember for everything this side of eternity. We are not in Eden, and everything this side of eternity is tainted with sin and falls short of the glory of God. Whether they be marriage or parenting, like, wouldn't it be awesome if when you spoke to your kids, and maybe you have kids like this, but you spoke to your kids, you're like, do X or please do this, and they said, you know what, it is my pleasure and joy. It is my delight to do whatever you would like me to do, Father. Thank you for asking me. That's not the way it happens. Why? Because we're not in Eden. Jobs. It would be great if jobs were easy, if jobs were always fruitful, if jobs, like every bit of it was satisfying and our work was always perfectly productive. We don't live in Eden. But still, because Jesus quotes Genesis, Prior to the fall, he is telling us that there is a pre-fall Eden that we should endeavor to aim for. We may fall short of it, but there is a standard that we can shoot for. There is a place to be restored to. 
And in doing that, he, he says a lot about marriage really quickly just by reading a couple verses out of Genesis 1 and 2. A, he affirms the equality of men and women. B, he basically says marriage is defined as a man and a woman. C, he says marriage was designed to last a lifetime. That's what the pre-fall idea was all about, the standard with which we should aim for. But he does more than that. He says, look, there's more to marriage than just this union of two people because of some contract they made together. He takes it from a very earthly thing to a very spiritual thing. And I don't know how many weddings you've been at, probably quite a few. I've officiated quite a few. And I typically try to direct people's minds towards something beyond perhaps what they're seeing. That there's something going on in this ceremony that's bigger than they actually understand. Jesus says here that when people get married, something happens to them spiritually. Right? God seals them together in this two becoming one flesh. And they are, yes, connected materially, they're connected physically, they're connected emotionally and legally, but they're bound together spiritually in a supernatural way. So marriage may not be less than some certificate, but it's certainly much more. And so divorce is much more than just ending some contract. When you break a covenant marriage, you're not just tearing one flesh into two, you're destroying something spiritual that God himself put together. Now, what is the point if it's not marriage that Jesus is trying to get to? Well, I would offer this. Jesus knows Deuteronomy 24. He knows the word better than the Pharisees do. and He knows that the Bible is very clear about exceptions. Like that we don't live in Eden and there are allowable things because of the hardness of men's heart. But it's interesting that Jesus never focuses on the exceptions. He doesn't spend time there. Like, you know, well, if it's this scenario, you could do this, and probably this, this is okay. Unlike us, because we spend all kinds of time in the exception world. All kinds of time in the gray when the black and white is really clear. And I think many of us, many people will say, not us, I'll just make it a little softer for you, believe that they are the exception. We're always the exception. It's fascinating that Jesus never focuses on the rare exceptions because I think he knows that hard-hearted men have enough trouble following the normal rule. In our own current circumstances, so let's, let's broaden this a little bit. There's been a lot of discussion between Christians during this pandemic about Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. And you go, I don't even know what those passages are. Well, let me help you. Those are the passages that deal with the idea or call us to be subject to governing authorities or human institutions. They call us to even honor those authorities that they know are ungodly. Why? Because God is the one who has appointed them. So those passages. 
And we certainly know that those passages and calling us to be subject to those kinds of authorities aren't unlimited. Like, do whatever they tell you to do, whenever they tell you to do it. Like, that's not what they mean. We know that. But I find it interesting that both Paul and Peter, even though they know there are exceptions to the rule, they surprisingly don't spend any time focused there. Perhaps that's because too much submission in this particular area is not where most people are going to struggle. Maybe we have a tendency to rebel, a tendency to do what is right. Jesus, Paul, and Peter seem much less concerned with accidentally sinning and more concerned with pridefully presuming. And what are we pridefully presuming? I would argue we are presuming that we are the best judges of right and wrong, that our perspectives are inerrant, and that our feelings are sovereign. That's the tendency. We presume that this moment must be the exception, and I'm exceptional to know it. That can be in marriage. That can be in just about any circumstance. This is the exception. Clearly, this is the exception because it's hard, because it's difficult, because I don't like it. This is the exception, and I'm the only one that seems to see it, so I must be exceptional. Now, I will grant this. It's possible that that is the exception. And it's possible that you are exceptional in in seeing that while others may struggle to see it. But I would also propose that it's equally possible that your earthly citizenship has become more important than your heavenly one. And that you have confused perhaps what God might permit to what God actually prefers. That's also possible. And this is where Jesus is trying to push on these Pharisees. Well, in his final words... He does take his disciples and he gets really specific because they're very confused. If you look at the narrative in Matthew 19, you'll see that in that narrative, Jesus does actually state the exception. He says, except for sexual morality, which is from Deuteronomy 24. And so when he says this, the disciples are very troubled. In fact, after he says the exception, like, yeah, pretty much you need to stay together unless there is sexual morality... The disciples say this, well, if this is the way it is, no one should get married. That's their response. They say, that's too, that's too hard. If that's the only way we can get out of a marriage, then no one should get married because it's too hard. Now, what's possible to infer from that is that the disciples must have largely agreed with the liberal interpretation of marriage and divorce. And admittedly, Jesus says, yeah, it is pretty hard. He actually says, this is a hard word to receive, and not everyone is going to be able to receive it the same. And scholars debate whether Jesus is talking about because marriage forever is hard, or divorce never is hard, or being single is hard. It's kind of like, he could be talking about all three of those things, because they're all hard in their own ways. But regardless of one view, what we see Jesus definitely doing is pushing against the temptation that all of us have to search for a loophole for ourselves. 
an escape clause to get out of the situation that we feel is too difficult and undeserved. Basically, he challenges the tendency of us to ask, how far can I go without sinning? How close to the edge can I get without dishonoring God? Well, in Mark 10 to 12, Jesus, or verses 11 to 12, he makes it clear that there is a right answer biblically. And he says, look, a man or woman cannot divorce their wife or husband for any cause. In the view of God, he basically says marriage is largely permanent and divorce for no reason is to cause you or your spouse to commit adultery, which is an abomination. And it's interesting, out of all the laws the Pharisees could have asked about, you go, like, why, why are they so curious about marriage? And why did Mark and Matthew feel it necessary to include this text? Because they didn't have to. I think part of the reason, and again, as you consider all the weddings you've been to, whether you hear these kinds of things, part of the reason I think that it's so important or prominent in the gospel here is that marriage has been chosen by God as a supreme part of his creation. It has a unique role in his creation. Marriage is the metaphor that God decided to use for himself to describe his relationship to his people. And when he talks about fidelity, he's talking about worship. And when he talks about adultery, he talks about idolatry. So those are the language he uses. He tells his people, you've committed adultery because they've gone after other gods. And so he uses these marriage terms often to describe his relationship. And then the Apostle Paul takes it even more specific in Ephesians chapter 5, which again, you probably hear in a lot of wedding sermons, but you may not hear this part. Ephesians chapter 5, it says... After Paul quotes Genesis, man shall leave his wife, leave his wife, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, right? The whole marriage verse. He says this in Ephesians chapter 5, this mystery, so he's speaking about marriage because you just quoted the marriage verse. This mystery is profound, marriage. And I'm saying that it, marriage, refers to Christ and the church. So what is he saying? How a man loves a woman, how a woman loves a man in marriage is designed to display something about God's love for us in Christ. It's designed to preach a sermon, namely the gospel. Now, think about this. Jesus went to the cross to save sinners. We know that. He went to the cross to save idolaters. You know that. He went to the cross, if the Old Testament is our filter, to save spiritual adulterers. To save adulterers. God had every right to divorce us. Every right to divorce his unfaithful bride, who are clearly unfaithful. But instead of claiming the exception, which he had every right to do, Jesus humbled himself and gave himself up for his bride. And in doing so, 
Jesus calls us to ask different questions rather than, well, how far can I go without sinning? Or like, what is, what is most biblical? And instead of asking how we can get out of a particular relationship or a particular situation, it's better perhaps to ask, how might I trust and endure and even glorify God in this situation? Let that be the first question we ask. How might the greatness of God be displayed, whether it be His grace or His patience or His love or His kindness or His goodness or His faithfulness or His self-control? How can I say something, display something about God? How might I trust in His promises despite my pains and despite my preferences and despite my perceptions? How might I do all things, become all things for the sake of the gospel? That's perhaps the better question, whether it's a difficult marriage or a difficult pandemic or whatever situation you find yourself in. But to make it a little more relevant to where we're at today, I want us also to remember that that path to the cross that Jesus took was full of injustice. It was full of mistreatment. It was full of suffering, undeservably. That suffering came from friends. That suffering came from religious leaders who be like, don't you guys know better? And the suffering came directly from government. And yet, we know that as the divine Son of God, right? God incarnate, the one true King and creator of the universe, like, if there was anyone who didn't deserve it, anyone that we go, this is beyond exceptional, it was this. Nothing can compare to the suffering, undeserved suffering of Christ. And yet, as he did with marriage, spiritually speaking, to his bride, he calls us to a different way of living. He calls us, instead of looking out, where's my escape? He calls us to look up and say, where's my God? Consider what Peter later writes in 1 Peter 2 about Christ enduring in difficult situations that were uncomfortable and inconvenient. He says, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, so it's not just mindful of yourself, it's not just for kicks, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And then he lays out the example. So what, what are we supposed to do in these difficult situations, in this difficult pandemic? Well, let's see what Christ did. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore sins in his body on the tree that he might, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. For we were strained like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls.
That's the example to follow. Whether it be in a particular relationship or a particular circumstance, as men and women who have suffered for those who put their faith in Christ, who have suffered and died with Christ, remember that you have nothing to lose in this world and everything to gain in the next. Be mindful of God as you suffer. Be mindful of God as you endure. For this is what we have been called to, to follow Jesus' example. And his example is a little bit different than I think we remember. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for the strength to live like Christ. Lord, it is so easy when we are reviled to revile and return. It is so tempting when we are persecuted, when we are restricted to threaten or fight back or rebel. That wasn't Christ's first response. He humbled himself. He entrusted himself. Lord, instead of us seeking in a way of escape, instead of us focusing so much on an exception, I pray you will help us to ask questions about what will be most glorified to you, God. And I'm sure sometimes that is making one decision and sometimes it's making another. But would you, Holy Spirit, give us discernment as to when we should speak, when we should be silent, when we should obey, when we should disobey, and let everything we do be for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of God. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.